So it's way right? more fun to interview when I don't know anything about the person because then I can ask all You don't know what's coming. You yeah. don't know what's going to come out of his brain or out of his mouth. I don't know either. It's going to be just a crapshoot of chaos, but hopefully nice. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, hi, you're listening to Service from Hell, a podcast featuring people that are currently in customer service positions or the lucky few that got out and all the good, bad and infinitely irritating things that go along with that work. I'm action writer Kate Gaffney and I'm uniquely qualified to discuss this as I used to work at a very busy and very popular comedy club in Los Angeles. And at least one of you listening right now has probably grabbed me and told me you were ready to order when I was running around like a crazy person. So let's eat. I'd like to welcome our guest actor and director, Brian Palermo. Is that how you pronounce your last name? I'm a real asshole. I should yeah, have. sure. Let's go with it. Okay. <laughs> Brian has been on your TV so many times that if I listed all of his credits, your heads would explode. So, however, I am going to list one here because of all of his credits, he was on this tiny little show called Friends that no one's ever heard of. But he's originally from the great city of New Orleans. Palermo moved to L.A. to pursue acting, although he has performed with several improv comedy troops, also too many to mention. Brian considers the Groundlings Theater his home. He's been performing, directing and teaching for almost 20 years. Brian has guest starred on a delightfully ridiculous range of Hollywood industry stuff from most recently on Gronish and Henry Danger to all the way back to Baywatch, y'all, if you remember that show, which was an amazing show, especially if you didn't live in California. Behind the scenes, Brian was a staff writer on the animated series Hysteria for Warner Brothers and has written scripts for Disney's The Weekenders and Dave the Barbarian. I better know Brian from seeing him on TV and having my industry colleagues respect him so much they made him meet me right now in real time, y'all, you're hearing it, because they insisted that he be on the podcast because he's so lovely and I've known him for all of three minutes and I totally agree. So I'm meeting him today and you guys will meet him too and love him as well. So tell us, Brian, what got you into comedy? How did you start acting? Do you actually like teaching? Tell us. Kate, this is going to be so much fun because you speak faster than I do, which is a rare treat. Uh, oh my God, that was such a loaded opener. So how to get into comedy? What do I like? Do I like teaching? Got into comedy because I wanted to, um, you know, stand out in a positive way. I was. Uh, this is a, a, a very common story for performers, I find. But I was really shy when I was really young, and I wanted to get out of that. And I found, oh, I got a laugh in sixth grade, and then I never let go of the junkie oxytocin monkey. So, um, yeah. And I found that was fun. And I, I uh, so I don't know, I got into comedy that way. And I also enjoy it. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a student of comedy. You know, I love all, I love all that stuff. So yes, comedy came in uh, because I was trying to fit in, but then I, I got to enjoying it. All right. Then uh, the last thing I think, I think you said is do I like teaching? I'm going to miss the, the question in between, but I love teaching. I'm, I'm, and that was a complete random gift, Kate, because I got into the Groundlings and I was trying to set up some kind of professional acting career. And I'm very grateful and blessed and lucky and pleased and all that stuff that I had some. But when I got into the company, I had no intention of teaching. That was that was more of a performance you know, venue. But we needed teachers and I needed a side hustle. So I started teaching at the Groundlings. This is 20 years ago or something. And I really liked it. I, I, I like being around more people like myself and being able to share some, you know, cool stuff to help them uh, sort of jump on their, their train, you know, and do their improvs. Uh, and then from there, about 10 years ago, I uh, sort of specialized 
in teaching corporate and presentation skills to science communicators. So I'm a huge science nerd. Yeah, I know. You guys <laughs> at home, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't see Kate's face, but her face was like, what? Shock? Shock face. Uh, yeah, so I work with JPL, which is NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, and I work with, yeah, I'm going to do something for Brookhaven National Lab next month over on your side of the world. Uh, National Park Service, I'm in contract with those guys. So I teach a lot in the science world, and that has become my favorite, favorite way to apply improv, more so even than comedy. Wow. I have, okay. I want to go back, but I first want to jump on the science thing because that is so fascinating. So what is it that a scientist who is like changing the world at JPL and like developing rockets, what do they need to improvise for? It's, it's not improvising comedically, as you might think, or theatrically, or even performatively. It's improv that I use as just exercises to teach interpersonal communication skills and presentation skills. So sometimes they literally have to present, they have to go get funding from the Pentagon or they have to get funding from whatever grant board they need to get a review passed by, or they want to get on the the collaboration team that's working on X project that they're really into and that's what they want to advance their career with or whatever. So all these things require good interpersonal skills because people are uh, vastly differently trained, but unbelievably you can still find you know more than one rocket scientist how, how do you how do you differentiate yourself, differentiate yourself positively and having those communication skills is a big part of that so i touch on all those kind of things and sometimes it's very specifically presentation to the public so um occasionally i'll work with science communicators who are doing that or at the national park service there's a lot of their rangers who actually interpret and interact with the public so sometimes it's more specifically presentation skills that's really sweet that you're teaching someone. I can imagine someone at the National Park Service who just really likes trees, not knowing the best way to communicate that to like a group of teenagers. Yeah. How sweet is that? That's really lovely. I don't know how sweet it is, but I love to try to, to help them. And I just, uh, you know, a lot of times too, the scientific community will will trend uh, introverted. And I'm being, I'm, I'm generalizing very broadly here. But sometimes the bigger thing is when you train as a scientist, you're just all about your information. What's what's the evidence? What's the data? What's the facts? What's the precision precision of information? And when you're communicating, information is important. But the first thing has got to be your partner, your audience, who who you're connecting to. So I teach a lot of connection stuff. All right. Anyway, I don't want to bore you with it. I just That's don't. not boring at all. No, I'm actually fascinated and I'm asking a follow-up question. Um, so, so when you are, because like, okay, in traditional improv setting, like I've gone through a hundred schools and the million classes, you know, it'd be like, oh, zip, zap, zap, gets us started. And then we're, you know, finishing each other's sentences or we're, t- what's the suggestion or whatever. So like traditional improv as we understand it. Okay. That's how that works. Yep. Why, how is interpersonal communication improv? Like what's a game you would play with that group of humans? Almost any of them, but the big things I, cook, I I concentrate on are active listening. Like if you and I are going to improvise a scene, I have no idea where it's going to go until I'm listening to understand you. And as much as I want to be a part of this dyad and I want to contribute to it, if I'm not connecting with you and your idea, I'm just going to blow right past you, or you're not you know you're not going to be able to get your information out. I and mean, it's just not, it's not a good dynamic. So the first thing is active listening. Second thing is communicating with a little bit of emotion. I I, I make the jokes like you need eleven percent more emotion so people can understand what the f is on your face you know because a lot of times those information processing people they really it they feel like the information's it and if i speak the words that is enough i have just conveyed everything well no humans uh read each other and emotions are such a big clue to your audience that it helps them understand which serves your message so all this is all about serving them as a better messenger as well as serving their audience but anyway so a little bit of listening uh, to understand a little bit of using emotion and then a lot of it is just 
you know, exposure therapy to public speaking and being able to pivot a little bit, uh, the, uh, the agility aspect of improv, taking the pressure off of the information for this practice so that they can really work on the mechanics of connecting with another human being and all those kinds of things uh, swirl together real nice. Well, and didn't, I think universally speaking, at least for the United States in a, in a study years ago, like the two biggest fears that people have naturally are one is the dentist and two is public speaking or something like that. Yeah, and maybe I, I'm flip-flopping those orders, but. No, I've, I've always heard the, uh, the uh, public speaking one is number one, but I think that's you know, some psychology today poll, or I mean, I, I don't, I don't know how with that. So now that I've worked with the scientists for 10 years, I'm very hesitant to say, <laughs> hey, well, I, the science is Kate, because I guarantee you somebody will write you right into you and correct it and be really upset that I got, you know, so you're, yeah. So some random actor who teaches occasionally improper scientists said, this was a scientific fact. F you lady, you know, so I don't want to, I don't want to throw you in that kind of bucket, but yes, that's long been a sort of anecdotal thing is the number one human fear is public speaking. And so there's a lot of social uh, evolutionary biology that goes with that, where it's a fear of being ostracized. Or if you break the taboo, then you're not going to be part of the tribe anymore. And if you're not part of the tribe evolutionarily, then you don't get food. You don't survive. You don't get to procreate and send on your genes. You know, our two instincts are survive and propagate your genes. And if you're the idiot who's outside as you keep throwing poo at people, <laughs> then you don't get to survive and propagate your gene. So that's, that's where it's supposed to come from. The anxiety is supposed to come from that, but it manifests nowadays in geez, I'm really nervous talking to strangers. I'm really nervous talking in front of multiple strangers. You know, uh, I'm aware of my self-consciousness because uh, I want to impress my colleagues or I, I just I just don't want to look like an ass. I mean, you know, there's a million there's a million um, sort of facets within that. So how did you transition from teaching sort of exclusively in a actor school kind of setting theater based improv to how did you get into the corporate side of things? Yeah, so the corporate thing Groundlings has uh, an arm of that does uh, corporate stuff. So that's what I had first. And I probably, you know, the first several of those I did, Kate, I had no confidence in what I was doing. You know, that was really taking an improv, like, basically just an improv guy going, hey, hey, PepsiCo, isn't listening's good, right? You know, I had no idea. Um, so over the decades, I've gotten a lot better, I'd like to say. And then, uh, yeah, about 10 years ago, I met this guy named Randy Olson. He's a former marine biologist, and he became a filmmaker at USC. So he was here in town. He was using a lot of groundlings and different uh, films and stuff like that. And he asked me to design a, a workshop for some science communicators locally here. And his gang was all marine biologists. So it was uh, Surfrider Foundation and Healed the Bay and Monterey Bay Aquarium and, and all these kind of places. And I said... I, Randy, honestly, I'll, I'll do it. I'll, I'll apply some of the corporate stuff I do. So it's not comedic, but I don't know anything about specifically teaching the scientific cohort. But from that first one, the feedback was great. Everybody loved it. Everybody said it was valuable. I loved it. I'm a big science geek, Kate. So I just love talking to new people with new stuff. It's like, what? Tell me, tell me about that. You know, so I, I don't, I just love being in that world. And uh, yeah, 10 years later, that's, that's becoming a big part of my thing. So now I'm going to make you go into your time machine and go backwards, backwards. So you're originally, <laughs> I knew, why did I know you were going to jump on that? Okay, great. So we are now back to uh, little baby Brian, who is in New Orleans, having a great time. And at what point were you like, oh, acting is my jam. I'm about to do that forever. Ooh. 
uh, not until after I moved out here. So I thought L.A. was my. I know. Again, listeners, yeah. you can't see Kate's face. But here's here's my. I tell my scientists, you're communicating so much on your face with your expression of just shock and incredulity. That's what humans pick up on. Not one word did Kate say, but I knew exactly what she said. Okay, so like a lot of other people, will share this part of it. I wanted to be an actor, but I was petrified. I was so scared to do it. In high school, I didn't do anything. In college, I in communications, but I started doing uh, all my electives in the theater part of the world. So from, I don't know, sophomore year on, I did a bunch of plays and a bunch of stuff in college and around New Orleans as well. At the end of my time, like uh, six months before I moved out to LA, I found an improv group out of Tulane. I went to University of New Orleans, UNO, but um, there was a group at Tulane that was auditioning people. So I played with them and that's when I really got the bug. So I joined their group. We did bar prov in the French Quarter for maybe just two months before I <laughs> bar moved. Bar prov is so miserable. Bar prov in the oh, sure, oh god, awful. everything is. I mean, you've done it, right? You're, yes. You're, 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 all right. So I don't know if you have you ever done bar prov. Yes, it's the oh. fucking worst. Yes. Yeah. So you know exactly what I mean, right? Hey, so uh, Kate and I run a small business. What is it? She's effing you with a fork. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, so yeah, but you you get thrown in the <laughs> you get thrown in the lava and you learn. Anyway, anyway, anyway. So I loved acting. I loved performing. I loved improv comedy stuff. I'm also very practical, and I didn't think that was a viable career for me. So I moved out to LA just to hopefully work in the entertainment industry as anything, uh, TV production, film production, uh, advertising for, you know, uh, answering the phones for something in in the Hollywood industry I thought would be more fun than whatever I would have done in New Orleans, which would be, you know, chucking oysters or working on an oil rig or, you know, teaching communication. I don't know what I would have done. But I came out here. I worked at Wheel of Fortune was my uh, was my big day job for seven years. I worked at the, the game show, the very fancy game show. Wait, what'd you do? And, uh, did a bunch of, I was everything. I was the I was the uh, the the phone troll for a while. I just answered the phone eight hours a day, and people. The, it was the contestant line, and people wanted to know how to become a contestant on on there. And they had things such as voicemail it, back then, Kate. This was only eighty nine <laughs> or ninety or whatever. But the producer at the time wanted a human to answer that phone, and I I appreciate that idea. But what it did was prevent 80% of the people who were interested from getting to a human voice, you know, ever. So anyway, I did that. And then I, I moved up and I was a prize coordinator. Have, have you ever met a, a professional prize coordinator? No, I'm so well, honored. Thank you for being on our podcast. Now, I, <laughs> <laughs> I complete. Uh, yeah. So I did that for a while. And when I, when I left, I was the special events coordinator. So it was kind of everything outside the production of the show it was fan mail and websites and merchandise and junk like that. And I loved it. I, I, I would still be at that job today if I didn't start getting acting work. But while I was at wheel, I was taking all my classes at Groundlings and uh, all the other places I played at theater sports and while well, a bunch of theaters that aren't even around anymore. And, um, at some point, I got into the company at the Groundlings, and I got my first agent, I got my first job, and then it became a possibility. I'm going to pause you because I don't think that our listeners, uh, we have listeners all over the world, and not everyone understands how big uh, that actually is to be in the company of Groundlings. And just oh. so other people understand, some other alumni that have been 
I don't know, in the company at one point. Oh, someone named Kristen Wiig. I don't know if anybody knows of her. Or um, I think Will Ferrell. I think he was in there yep. for a minute. Uh, yep. You know, gosh, I can't think of anyone else. Melissa McCarthy, Maya oh. Rudolph, uh, Pee Wee Herman, Chris Parnell, Lisa Kudrow, Cheryl Hines, uh, a lot of different people over the years, you know. Uh, so it's it's no, we are, we, the Groundlings are nowhere near as large as Second City, whom I love. I'm a big fan of all the different houses, but Second City, I think most people are somewhat familiar of the Groundlings, maybe not, well, probably not as much, but in LA, it's pretty well known, especially for comedy because of all those people that we just mentioned. And uh, a couple of current SNL, Mikey Day and Heidi Gardner are in the cast currently. One of the, the co-head writers, Kent Sublette, is Groundling. You know, so Groundling's got, got this big alumni group, you know, and, and many of whom are huge stars and many of whom are myself. You know, I was a working actor for 20 years. You have no idea who I am, but that was uh, almost directly because I got into the company at that's, the Groundling. That's amazing. And, and so you get, so you start going to classes there and you're getting your feet wet with that and then you get signed while you're in the company and then do you start you just immediately start going out on auditions and then you're, you're you had to pivot yes we had a uh we have a, what's called the sunday company at the groundlings which is the last sort of classroom set before you either invited into the main company or not and in the sunday company you're doing shows every sunday hence the name so i was in that for a year and a half so you do you know whatever 18 months of shows are 18 times four and somewhere in that in that time frame an agent asked if um, if I wanted to be represented by her. And I said, yes, of course. I, you know, Because again, I, I didn't really have... My version of the dream of being a professional actor was really a dream. Like, I didn't think I was acting towards it. I didn't think I could ever get an agent. I didn't think I would ever, you know, be on a show. I, you know, that was also foreign to me. Now, for the past 20 years, New Orleans has had a lot of TV production and stuff. But when I grew up there, there was nothing. So... I had no connections to the entertainment industry at all. And I, I, I thought people that were on shows were Martians that lived in another nice. world. I didn't know any of them. I never met anyone who was a writer. I never met anyone who was on a set before. Uh, yeah, so I got that uh, that first agent. And that's how my, my first job was, you mentioned Baywatch in the bio. That was my very first job ever. And it was great. And um, what I, were you? I was hooked. I was, let's see, a, oh, a grateful husband of the wife who was saved by Hasselhoff in the beginning of the show. So uh, she, she's in a convertible or something, goes off the cliff and lands in the ocean. Hasselhoff saves her, get, gets her to the sand, and then she gives birth to our unborn baby because she was pregnant as well, which you didn't know when she first goes in the water. So this is the big <laughs> opening action scene. And then at about 58, and, 58 minutes and 30 seconds left, I think they had a minute and a half to fill. So they wrote an extra scene where the, the, the grateful husband just shows up out of nowhere <laughs> and then I'm the comic relief and just like, I, you saved my wife and my baby. Thank you. Here's a cigar and blah, 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 blah. And that was my first professional job. And you said, and then you were hooked and that was, and that was it. And I was hooked. Oh my God. It was great. I, I worked for about six hours. I got residuals for 20 years. I was on a, I literally on the beach. I mean, it was, it was the fantasy. I was literally on the beach for a day and it was great. Yeah, and for our non uh, non industry audience, residuals for twenty years. What he's saying is he got random checks in the mail and was like, "Oh, I guess that episode aired somewhere on some channel." And yeah. and apparently Hasselhoff has said in interviews, it's part of why the German audience loves his music. He was huge in like Germany and China because the show yeah. Baywatch actually got somehow came onto the yeah, and that because it, it was all. I mean, you know, I no no. no 
offense to the writers on the staff of that, but it was basically a bunch of hot people in small outfits running around with skin showing. It worked internationally because no one had to know your dialogue or even bother with the captions because it was hot people running around <laughs> in small swimsuits. Um, but the residuals thing, which is also fun, possibly fun for your, for your uh, listeners, they range from probably, you know, 20 to 50 bucks on down to less than 10 cents. And that's a sliding scale. So 20 years ago, I was getting 20 to 50 bucks. And then ever since, it's gone down much closer to the 10 cent kind of thing. So I don't think I've gotten one in a while. But it was not an amazing life changer in that sense. But it was certainly a lot of fun. And boy, did I want to do it after that. I think it's a rite of passage where everyone has that one. And I cashed mine, that one residual check for a penny. I'm like, this costs you more to send to me and to like print out the check than this check is worth. And I'm still cashing it. Of course. Yeah. So ridiculous. Of course, of course. There's a bar in in, a, in Studio City, I think, called Residuals. Are you familiar with it? Yes. And yeah, they would, uh, I don't know if they still do or if they still exist, but they would um, give you a drink for whatever size residual check. So if you had one for a penny, they would still take it and give you a drink for it. Because it was so common. Everybody has those those horribly small residuals. Which is just like this like secretive LA. Uh, yeah, I, I love those kinds of little nuggets. Okay, so... You come to L.A., you're hooked, you've been doing it forever. Uh, How, just because I know our audience pretty well, what episode of Friends, how can they see you, and how much fun was that show? Oh, God, yeah. All right, so, uh, Friends, I am, here's another piece of trivia. Kate, I'm just giving you tons of trivia. Yes. I am, what did I play? I was the, uh, the airline desk guy trying to rush Aniston to either get on the plane or not get on the plane. So I know I'm which one. Yes, yeah. I know exactly. That I, is you. It's me, but 15 years ago. I'm the very last non-friend ever seen on the series. So after me, there's two scenes left, and it's only the six main stars. So I, there's a bit of trivia. I'm the very last non-star ever to be seen on that series. And then shooting it, of course, was amazing. It was a, it was a series finale. It was huge. The, the, you know, normally I think they had a live audience, but this was filled with all VIPs and celebrity people and, and all the big power people, all the agents and producers and blah, blah, blah. And uh, Aniston was still married to Brad Pitt, so he was hanging around and and uh, other big celebrity people were there and the security was through the roof. And it was just a, a weird, big, huge experience. Um, so and very emotional for those guys. You know, they were moving on into many other great things. But at the time, it's the end of the cool thing. So the main cast were very emotional for the week. And it was just a very special kind of week to be there. I was super psyched. To be, and I get residuals for them, too. I bet the you do. <laughs> but the, here's the biggest, the, best, the biggest best part, Kate, is now that that's been around for 15 years or so and is streaming wherever it's streaming, I've got nephews and nieces who have just come to the series over the past couple of summers. And finally, I've got a little bit of cred with some of my 15 year old nieces who really I don't think ever knew if I existed or cared but now there's a tiny bit of connection they're like Uncle Brian's famous it's amazing and you're like finally, <laughs> yeah, finally. and I'll take that they, uh, you know they don't know what real fame is so I'll take that I mean, listen, I speaking as an actor, like to have that credit on your resume is something that you can no one can ever take away from you. And that is one of the most I mean, it's up there with The Office as far as like just memorable series that people still quote and still I mean, they're doing a reunion on HBO in like a month or two. Yeah, yeah. I keep seeing stuff. It might be the the new stream HBO Max or whatever. Yeah, I I keep seeing promos for frenzy stuff. But you know what? You mentioned 
your audience a couple of times. Who is your normal audience? So if they're, if it's not a entertainment crowd, it's, it's, it's a mix from what I can tell. I get, uh, we get, or I can tell like what countries people are listening from. And some of the emails that we get are, are, they say right. that they're grateful that we explain some of the industry things. So I try to be ah, aware of that, but we, there's a ton of, I mean, just because of the community of people that are lovely and supportive of this podcast that I knew okay. before I was doing it there are a lot of entertainment professionals that do it and so, or that do it, that listen to it. And that was the crux of people that I was interviewing. So it's, but I always like to explain because, you know, my mom and her friends and their friends, friends, they all, they don't know anything about what we're talking about. So (laughs) I try to be aware. Besides your mom and her friends, how great is it to have international listeners? One of the few silver linings of the pandemic for me was very few was uh, the idea of connecting with international like improv people and teaching international classes and I've even done a couple of virtual shows with some people and uh, it's been, that's been really neat so I applaud you and uh, and I'm very happy you've got some international listeners thank right, you sorry, yeah. no no you're so sweet to ask yeah no I'm I'm really deeply deeply grateful y'all thank you so much for listening truly how she is I can see your face you guys you can't see your face but that is all gratitude every smile every covering of smile with uh, embarrassed hand is all gratitude that's just right. oozing out of Kate's body okay. thanks Brian <laughs> Um, how terrible was it to do shows on Zoom, or did you like it? Medium. I, I, I've, I've compared it to masturbation. It's nowhere <laughs> close to the real thing, but it's probably but better than do. nothing. You know, I'm, in, I, I'm enjoying myself for a few minutes, but it's not really going to do anything about sharing your lineage for the rest of the world. Uh, no, it's Call it's back. a medium fix. It's very much a medium fix. Right? It's, it's, I do find it better than nothing, but it's such an odd animal to perform into a vacuum. You know, because yeah. I'm used to doing live. I mean, I've done a lot of recorded, but I'm improv shows are almost always live for me. So you get immediate feedback, even if the feedback is silence. It's immediate. You know, so <laughs> you're either getting laughs or not, but you're you're getting feedback immediately and continuously in a live show. When we do it over for whatever the virtual, you get nothing. You're, you're you're putting it out there, and you can see in the chat box sometimes people are engaging and putting stuff there. But I can't split my phone. I can't read the chat box while I'm trying to do the show. So I never. Really Really know what's going on and then i read all the chats afterwards and it's like hmm let me see if they quoted any of my lines did anything i say get a laugh you know <laughs> and you're like oh shit oh, exactly. oh okay well i didn't say that I oh. vibe. <laughs> <laughs> okay and do you so so as of today and then we'll move on to the next section so you are sure. post pandemic will you be back teaching at the groundlings can people do privates with you yeah. like how do what's your where are you in la yes 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 and um uh so groundlings is hoping to open in july ish maybe i don't know when you know yeah, they're hoping to. It's not set yet, and I'm sure LA County's got something to say about it. But that would be both shows and classes coming back in person. As soon as they're allowed to, they will do it. I am personally moving, Kate, up to Washington State. I'm moving up to the Seattle area. Yeah, and now there's shock on her face again. You again? Guys, you <laughs> but I'll be teaching virtually and virtually for the Growling specifically because they're going to keep virtual classes going. And then uh, if anyone wants to get a hold of me, just hit my website. It's palermoimprovtraining.com. And uh, I do privates, I do classes, I do corporate, I do sci-fi, all the stuff. Sci-fi? No, science communication, sci-com. If you want to do sci-fi, I'll do that too. I'm an improv boy. I'll do whatever you want. And can I ask, um, because I'm currently not in Los Angeles. $5,000 an hour. But that's take home, Kate. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) Mike. I am in the wrong profession. I'm immediately yeah, totally. becoming oh, a teacher. <laughs> if you want listen, Ev, look, your listeners globally, if you want to be uh, rich beyond your wildest dream, become an itinerant improv coach. <laughs> that is just, 
the formula just, for, for money. There's just hidden <laughs> cash all over that industry. Um, yeah, so yeah. what is, if you don't mind me asking, if you don't want to answer this, you don't have to, what is taking you out of Los Angeles? It's mostly the family. I've got my sister-in-law and her family live up, up in that area. And within a year, my in-laws, my, my wife Michelle's parents, will also move out. That So when that happens, that will represent the first time that family's been together for three decades or so. So the, the family pull is a huge pull. The Again, the silver lining of the pandemic is I was an early, early adopter on the virtual training stuff. I mean, March 15th or whatever, I was trying that first thing. So what I've learned is I can continue a X amount of work virtually, and then when travel becomes a thing again, I can travel out to my other clients and still Basically, I can do all the training work from anywhere. So I'm kind of stepping away a little bit from the entertainment industry stuff, although I'll be able to do voiceovers up there as well. So stuff, stuff and stuff. But the bigger thing is getting out of the sprawl of L.A. It's 18 million people live here on my block, it feels. It's in your apartment building, actually. It's yes. it's crazy how I think that the pandemic is going to flip the entertainment industry on its face. I think we will be shocked at how once the sort of chips settle or the whatever, however you say it, that I think yeah. we were I think we will find that the that the L.A. and New York model that we knew before is going to be wildly different because I've gotten more auditions from my agent here. Um, what up, Laura? Than I have up, Laura? <laughs> the entire time that I've been in Los Angeles really like realistically and they don't really get a t- as much SAG work out here but they right. they had said to me that they're getting flooded with um, blind submissions because people are moving back to where they're from so I'll be interested yeah, to I see think you're right Kate I, sorry no, 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 I, th- I think it's good analysis I mean I think people who can work from home I think are going to predominantly choose to do so um, and that includes casting directors it includes directors for a casting you know session I you know it, of course, there's levels to it. it. You know, if you're casting a, a big movie star or whatever, you're going to take those meetings. But there's a lot of work that can be done, you know, virtually. So to whatever degree I'm involved in that, I'll be involved in that. But really, it also represents a shift to doing much more of the training stuff that I'm into. And, and it's an upgrade of the children get to go to a school with a lot fewer students in it per teacher. Than, and they get to, we get to be around a different kind of nature up there in the in the forest and the rain, all the rain, and we don't have rain in LA and things like that. So uh, that's kind of precipitated the big the big change. Congrats. All right. Well, Thank you. we hope you enjoyed your apps, folks. We're going to move on to the entrees after a quick break. We are back and now it is time to move on to the entrees. Okay, Brian, as you know, this is the speedy round yes. of questions and you have already given me, you don't even know it, you gave me seven customer service jobs that you have already done. What, and Brian told me initially, he's like, I don't know, Kate, I don't have a lot of customer service experience. I, I was like a pizza delivery guy once, but we'll see. And I said to him, you will be surprised how many of your jobs actually were customer service that you didn't think of. But we're going to go back to okay. origins of, of young Brian. So what was your first yep. job ever, ever, ever? Burger King. I worked at a Burger King for like three years from 15 to high school, basically. Okay, I have said on the podcast so many times, sorry that everyone's bored of hearing this. I think fast food is some of the hardest, most tedious work uh, that is so under-respected. And I have to know, what did you, did you, did you move up from fry cook to register person? Or was, or oh, was- yeah, all that stuff. So um, I got, I, okay, so they, uh, they, I live in the suburbs of New Orleans, so a place called Metairie, right? So a lot of, a lot of fast food and, and mall jobs. And that was kind of the only jobs teens were going to get and whatever. And I had... 
one of my uncles had another nephew on the other side of the family or whatever that worked at some regional level of Burger King. And he said, oh, you know what? They're hiring basically every week. Just go in there and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll give you this guy's name to put on the, the application and they'll, they'll probably hire you anyway. So I went in there. Turns out, I found out after the fact, I was dropping a huge name. Like I was dropping, like, this is the president of the world's name. Hire this 15-year-old kid to pour your soda. So everybody hated me right off the back. because was like, oh, here comes Chuck's boy. I was like, I've never even met Chuck in my life. Um, but whatever. So the first day they teach you how to press the two buttons for, you know, what size soda you want. The second day they teach you how to press the two buttons, I'll drop the fries. In the, and then you work up to the, the broiler and then it's customer interface, you know. They got to they got to they got to see if you've got any kind of skill to talk to humans. Uh, so I did. Yeah, I did everything over there. And then my, my manager at the time of that store left to go to Domino's and I went with him. So I just became a driver because I love my he was my buddy, Brian. I was like, yep, I'm, I'm I'll just switch from burgers to pizza. I love that you were disloyal to Burger King and that you decided the Domino's needed that Domino's, is, Domino's needed me. I love it so much. I'm not mocking that yeah. at all. I love that teenage brain of like, no, this guy Brian's cool. Like, I'm going with him. Oh, you're going to Domino's? Cool, I got you. Like, I feel no kind of way about leaving Burger King. I, I felt like I had achieved all I was going to achieve at the BK Lounge and I was ready for a change, Kate. I was ready for something new. So uh, off I went. I'm dead. Okay, wait, real quick. Um, did you? Nope. We're gonna get there. I'm getting ahead of myself because I'm so excited okay. about Burger King. Okay. So, <laughs> how many customer service jobs have you had? So you've just listed two, and then. Uh, oh, go ahead. Well, here's another one that I haven't I haven't dropped yet. I was a tour guide at Universal Studios, uh, and now this is only for about a month. I, it was right before I got the Wheel of Fortune job, but that was, you know, you're sitting up at the front of the tram talking to 400 people on four trams and then loading them on and off. It was also very much customer interactive. And so that in a way I would consider probably customer service. No question, because you also have to riff and the book of information, because I had friends that auditioned for that. That was a, you know, it. yes, that is a super competitive. (laughs) Well, I did Halloween Horror Nights there and I became friends with people that worked there all the time that oh, yeah. book brian you had to memorize all that shit and you it, only lasted a month ridiculous it's a ridiculous amount so again what the listeners aren't seeing kate's holding her fingers about <laughs> six inches apart because it is this massive binder of all the trivia of universe and universal's the first one it was around from 1920 blah 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 so you had like 80 years of trivia to learn it was a thing and I only lasted there for a month because it paid minimum wage. And it was not, you know, I, it was not this big glamorous job that I wanted it to be. I loved it. But when I got the offer for Wheel of Fortune, which had an air-conditioned office, yeah, <laughs> I kind of took that. I, You know, I, I told Universal, I was like, I've done it to Burger King. I'm going to do it to you. I'm moving <laughs> on to the better you, So <laughs> Wheel of Fortune is Domino's in this example is what we're saying. In this scenario, yes. <laughs> okay, okay. Wheel of is uh, yeah, so anyway, I was at Universal. I, very briefly, I used to cast extras, background extras, in really cheap B-movies, like really, really uh, low-budget films. That was the first job I did when I came out here. And that was interacting with humans all the time on both sides of it. So people who wanted to be background actors and the producers who hired me to get the background, you know, so that was also people. Was that so hard? It was hard. It was a learning experience. It was also kind of fun. It was all of it. It was the whole spectrum of things because it was my first job. Again, I had, never, I had no, I had zero connection to the Hollywood industry. So this to me was, I'm on a set. 
Um, I'm on a set of a movie that ain't nobody ever going to see, but I'm on the set. <laughs> and, and, and I'm learning and I'm talking to what, talk, talk to the AD, talk to the second AD. What's, what's an AD? What's a, how come there's two of them? Why do they, why do they call this? <laughs> you know, I learned a lot. I was fairly, fairly ignorant of the whole thing. But yeah, you know, at, back then it was cheap. I mean, people get paid like 40 bucks cash for a day. And that day could be eight hours. And then you get a bump of 10 bucks if it goes over to 10 or whatever. It was not great like it is now. And it was not union stuff where you can get decent decent pay and decent care. But anyway, so I did that for, I don't know, four or five, six months. That's a lot of customer interaction. Oh, I don't know. Over the years, all the teaching stuff is interaction too. With people, for right? sure. Okay. So I'm going to give you three for teaching and I gave you seven jobs at Wheel of Fortune because you floated all around. How many? And you were there for se- seven years, right? You said? Seven years, yeah. So a job a year is what I averaged. Okay. And then I would say, um, well, anything after, so teaching, you're lumping groundlings into the teaching. Teaching, I guess the the acting itself could be considered customer service. I mean, I think. You're pleasing the producers or directors, yeah. So the the acting career would be its own thing. And then I'm going to say the the tech training. training. Yeah, I'm going to say that. Okay, so. With those things, well, can you think of anything else? (laughs) In college, I was a seasonal elf. I was a Santa one season. See, you'll think of things when you're on the podcast. I'm so excited. So I did, I was the Easter bunny. So I I was a (laughs) guy in the costume with a giant oversized head. So there's not like a cute little thing, little nose on your face. It's just like giant mascot head. So I was the Easter bunny, maybe one season. I was Santa one season and a different season. I was the world's tallest elf selling balloons. (laughs) So yeah, that was a lot of customer interaction to the point of strangers sitting on your lap and not just kids, but you know, grownups want to take those pictures too. So yeah, that's pretty customer, customer (laughs) interface. Oh yeah. I should say. Oh yeah. Okay. So, (laughs) and I'm giving the bunny it's like bunny Santa elf counts as three because it's three seasons and you were different characters. So that's okay. So total 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. 19, 19 customer service jobs is total. Um, I'd make it 20. I was a bar back. Uh, I was a pouring bar back. In New Orleans at the time, the, the drinking age illegally was 18. So you could be working behind the bar at 17 because it's, it's Louisiana, man. We do whatever we want. Uh, <laughs> now it's all 21. But I was considered a pouring bar back. So I was allowed to pour draft beer, but I was not allowed to make cocktail. Uh, so, yeah, I did a little bit of service behind the bar as well. Wow. Okay. Pouring bar back. I have not heard of it called that, but that makes right. sense. I think it, was, it was completely some bogus thing that the <laughs> assistant manager made up so that, you know, they didn't have to hire another real bartender and pay them real money. Were you allowed to get tips as the pouring bar back? Yes, but I got tipped out by the bartender. So it was whatever, whatever they chose Deemed. to tip me out. That's bullshit. Okay. Yes. <laughs> All right. So we were rounding you off at an even 20 sure. of those 20. And here's where I will be specific. You may not say acting because obviously acting is okay. like the most fun. You're playing dress up for a living. Come on. But of totally. minus acting, what was your favorite job of all of that that you just listed of the 20? Uh, teaching the science communication stuff. I, I, I think that. it's uh, the most uh, fulfilling for me. I think it is actually helpful to the clients. Everybody kind of opts it. Every once in a while, there, there's a few people who are forced into a training, but mostly it's opt-in. So the participants are really into it and they're usually really scared and anxious. And I make that a big point of the class is just taking the pressure off of all of it. You're you know, Nobody has to be funny. Anyway, but I, I feel like it may be helping some people help science stuff 
which helps, uh, you know, it's just a net positive. Even at the end of the day, if it's an ineffectual training, I don't feel bad about it. I, I don't, I don't feel, uh, like I'm taking advantage of anybody or anything like that. So I really love that aspect of it. And then again, just being a science nerd, I love learning and talking to people in all the different disciplines of sciences. So that's gotta be, that's gotta be right up there. Maybe, uh, tied for number one It's probably tied with the acting stuff. Okay. And I don't think you realized it. Um, but in your nerdy science brain, you made a pun whilst you were describing that you said it was a net positive. And I just really want to acknowledge your nerdy science pun because that was that was very clever. <laughs> oh, I got you. I did not even intend it. I did not know it was there. You are a pun uh, uh, connoisseur. You found one where I didn't even intend it. Well done, Kate. Yeah, I didn't think you. I didn't think you were trying. One question I want to ask about you that is not normally in this section. You seem like an incredibly observant person who's like always taking it all in. Did that get refined with improv, or have you always been the sort of because si- you mentioned you were shy before? Were you always a silent observer that sort of took it all in? maybe I know it definitely got so heightened and practiced in improv training. So um, I don't think I was particularly observant as a kid. You know, I've, I've got a 13 and 10 year old and it's just, you know, the boys, they only see screens or what they want to see. So I, I'm sure I was the same way. I only saw stuff that I was interested in, but once you start training, even just doing the most simple scene study stuff, you, you should be trained to pay attention to your partner. I mean, you've got to react to what your partner is giving you. That's with scripted material. And then when you get into improv, you've got to listen to understand your part. So I learned to put focus on the other, which is another thing that I, I, I teach a lot in the science world, is it's not about what's in your head. It's about what's on your audience's faces. If they look confused, clarify it. If they look bored, change your tactic. You know. So, I, uh, yeah, I think I, I got a lot more aware of, of other people and being observant and trying to pick up on social cues and read the room and whatever metaphor goes with that, that's all very specifically uh, due to my improv training. Awesome. I wanted to zero because I was, you've no, you've mentioned a few things. I'm like, wow, he's such a good observer. Okay. Of those jobs, what, uh, the, what is your least favorite? Let's see. Oh God. Um, Barback. I think the barbacking yeah. because I didn't have the glamour of actually being a bartender. I only got to pour occasionally. So you know what it's like to be a barback. I mean, even if you've not done it, you know, it's like you're just lumping out trash, lumping in ice, clean, mopping up all the spilled crap, broken glasses every single night. Cut. I only did it for like two or three months and I cut <laughs> my fingers a bunch on all that, you know, so that. And it really was the status of not really getting to interact with the customers. I, I I didn't get to have a drink with my buddies or try to pick up all the beautiful women or anything. I didn't get any of the bonus of it. I was just the grunt part of it. So yeah, maybe I'd have to say the bar backing was 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 my least favorite. What's the weirdest thing you've been asked to do whilst you were on the clock? <laughs> when is Vanna coming out of her stateroom? That's got to be pretty specific. Um, we, one of my jobs at Wheel at the end, the special events thing, I would help coordinate the big uh, sweepstakes every year. And uh, Kate, I, you, you may or may not be surprised, but they had millions and millions and millions of, of, of viewers. It's, the show's still on because it's so universally popular and it's easy to watch, you know, babies up until you die. Everybody <laughs> watches that show. So they'd have a sweepstakes and they have 15, 20 million entry. And, you know, one of the grand prizes was a cruise. So I would help coordinate that. So for three years, I got to go on a cruise and Vanna would come for like two days at, at two of the stops or whatever. And I would have to coordinate her travel and coordinate all her stuff. So all, all, the, all the people who won these, it was being 100 winners in their, in their 
and their guests, I was their contact. I was like their their liaison concierge. So they were constantly coming up to ask me questions about Vanna and where she is on the ship and, you know, how can they go bump into her? And it's like, guess what? My job is not, is, is exactly the opposite of that. I'm never going to let you go bump into Vanna. I, I wish I could, but I don't want that for her. So uh, that was a weird thing to be asked, I think. Absolutely. And so how would you like lovingly get out instead of being like, fuck you, I can't tell you. How would you would you just say, oh, "Oh, gosh, I don't know. So if they were, you know, people and of course, the winners wanted to meet uh, Vanna and that was a part of it. So we would have an autograph session on Tuesday from three to four o'clock or whatever. That's the official meet and greet. And you could take your pictures with Vanna and uh, whatever. But the rest of the time, no, I'm I'm afraid I can't tell you where Vanna is, you know, that kind of stuff. She's hidden. She's in a suitcase. Exactly. And what what people don't know is she's actually a magic pixie. And when she's not in public, she's uh, the size of a microscopic, like a dust mite. You can't even see Vanna. She's a petite little tiny magic pixie. That's why they'll let her stay on TV. She's so thin. Um, Okay. (laughs) Okay. That's definitely, that's the weirdest answer I've probably ever gotten. That's pretty amazing. Okay. Um, There you have it. Yeah. What's an incident that, that ever made someone ask to speak with your manager at any of these jobs or your higher up (laughs) or someone in charge of you? All right. I knew you were going to ask something like that. I'm not proud of it, but at Burger (laughs) King, my first job, after the first couple of you know, minutes, you kind of can master the work and you get kind of bored. So in the drive, the drive through, I used to play with the customers <laughs> and I, I, kinda, I wrote a sketch about it eventually, but it, you're looking at them through the mirror and they don't see you. They just, they're talking to the box. You know, you've been through a drive through. Uh, so I say, welcome Burger King, may I take your mother? <laughs> and just kind of bury it like that so they wouldn't hear it. And I got away with it maybe 95% of the time. And uh, so, welcome, Berkey. Can I take your mother? Yeah, I want a Whopper with cheese. Uh, okay, well, your car looks like it's on fire. Uh, you talk to me. I'll, I'll, have, I'll have the pie. You know, it's like kind of, and nobody listens to you. And then you, you learn that. You learn, like, no, nobody's listening to the actual words they're just, they heard a thing from a box and they started screaming about stuff that they wanted. And that's exactly how I am too. I'm a horrible consumer person as well. But I got caught <laughs> once yes. by a, like a big scary guy in a pickup truck and he wanted to talk to my manager. And I, this is my friend Brian and I sent him out there and I played it off like the guy misheard me. You know, I totally lied about it. And he heard me say, may I take your mother? And he did not think it was funny. So I just, I just, oh, no, I wouldn't. I said, may I take your order? You know, I, I'm sorry. I must have mumbled. But it was, yeah, I, I pretty much wet myself. I was very scared. But also, it's not like you said, may I please go, like, F your mother or something, like, really offensive. Oh, God, no. No, no, so no, 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 no. That's, that, was the, that was the second week I worked there. I moved up to that kind of <laughs> You're an accelerated uh, <laughs> jokester. No, I usually kind of left it at that and, you know, amused myself and whoever else was on drive through duty with me. And, and you know, it's, it's that, it's, it's that uh, wanting to stand out in a positive way. So I was, I was trying to show off to whoever else was working with me in the drive through and uh, I got busted. Yeah. And I guess my, the reason I said that like that is because I think it's so silly to waste a manager's time or to try and get some 16. Well, at that point you were, you know, 13 or 15. No, 16 16, to get some sort of 16 year old kid in trouble for that. Like 
you got something else going on. You know what I mean? Like, that's not about the kid that said something silly on the, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. okay. Okay. I, think you're sir. Right. I, I never really thought of it that way, but yeah, I was definitely just being a stupid kid being okay, silly. Yeah. Uh, you didn't, you know, anyway, that's but you probably more than anyone else on the planet. You know what customers are like and you know how they can be, you know, even when it's a pretty innocent thing, Yes. Uh, yeah. So that if was they, probably my, my manager position. Yeah. If they want to take it out on you, they will. Okay. Uh, what's the last straw? Now we know that you were poached out of the BK lounge. So you, I, there's not a last yep. straw at that job, but is there a last straw yep. with any of these customer service jobs where you were like, I mean, cause some of these, you said, you know, two, three months and obviously the universal job was because you got wheel of fortune and stuff, but was there yeah. some moment where you were like, Oh, I hate this. I'm out. Yeah, casting the extras, casting the background extras, my first job out here, because it was sort of the low budget stuff. And that's just how, you know, every there's everything's got its level. So I have no judgment against doing low budget stuff. I I did a ton of it. But because of that, the pay's not great, like I said. And people all want to be on camera. People all want to be actors. You and I represent 100% of this demographic, and at least whoever's here, we, we, I'm going to speak for you. We want to be in front of the camera, you know? So, I, I felt like some of the crappier days were taking advantage a little bit of people who wanted to be in front. And people were signing up. I mean, they were opting in. It's not like we forced anybody to come do background work for 40 bucks. But I would feel as if the production was taking advantage of them a little bit. And I felt like the, my background actors were my friends and my responsibility. I wanted to protect them. So, but the producers are all about, you know, we're, we're making this on a thousand bucks nobody's getting paid. They're going to get this shitty. And they're the the bottom of the hill, you know, that they wouldn't let the background actors eat until after everybody else had eaten and stuff. And they, they had their own craft service shit. table. So they wouldn't, you know, locust and, and come through and just kill everything. <laughs> so I felt by, by at some point I felt bad that the productions in my view were really kind of disrespecting my background people. Mm-hmm. And I didn't like that. Oh, that's very, it speaks to your empathy. And that would be a really hard taxing job, especially and you're you're so right. It's you're watching people who who really want the thing that they're on set observing yeah. happen. And it can be it can make you testy. I've done background work. It is torturous when you're watching oh, people too, live yeah. out their dreams and you're like, but that's also my dream. Help, <laughs> you yeah. know, and, and I, I'm 17 inches away, but no, it's not even the same. So one of my best friends is Stephanie Courtney, who plays Flo, the progressive girl. And she's she, pause for one second. I have seen her improvise at the ground. She is one of the best improvisers oh. I have ever ever seen perform talk about someone who can pivot and be hilarious like she is lovely sorry go ahead she's great no i didn't look any more any more time we could put it to the world praising uh, stephanie courtney is well worth it for, to me although she's a monster she's got a giant head don't ever <laughs> praise her no stephanie's great and because she's blowing uh i will get background work through her. So I've done it as recently as just two years ago. Why did I bring this up? Oh, just because I've done it so recently and, you know, I've seen it and now, but that's all union and they treat everybody really well and everybody, but, oh, that's what I want. I, in one of the spots, I was right next to the leads and it's exactly what you're saying. It's like, I'm watching these people do what I want to be doing. How come she's getting paid $10 million to do this thing? And I'm just turning around my back to the camera, you know? So yeah, you live it. And if you're only getting paid 40 bucks for the eight hour day, you know, this is 30 years ago, but still it's, it's soul crushing. And, uh, yeah, so I, that, I, that felt a little gross. 
Yeah. It, well, it's that it's, it's just, it's the proximity. You're almost better off just being like back in the town where you're from being like, that'd be a cool thing to do someday when you can actually taste it and you're watching yeah. the process. It's, I, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe I would feel differently if I hadn't done it, but I just feel like it's infinitely harder to do. So have you ever told a customer to F off or like to, or have you ever gotten like raised your voice or been annoyed? I'm sure I've raised my voice. I don't think I ever told anybody to f off. I, I I also have my I'm up. I've got a people pleaser streak. You know, it's just like whether they were frustrating me or not. I didn't have the courage to tell somebody to f off. I would probably just you know bite my tongue and say yes, of course, <laughs> whatever you want. Exactly. <laughs> Customer's always right. But I I probably raised my voice a, a few times for for stuff. Just you know because people are annoying. Can you, <sighs> come on. Yes, they are. You know, it's really easy for me to judge because I'm perfect. No question. So I'm allowed to judge anybody else. Well, it's good that we're speaking because I am also perfect. So it it is a great balance for the audience to hear. Yeah, Yeah, you're an observer. And this is this is how. Yeah, Um, you're very observant. You observe that about me. Okay. Can, and I don't want to put you in a tricky position. So skip this question. If you, this was not on the original list, but I was just curious, have you ever, when you've been teaching, like maybe ages ago, not in the recent past, y'all not in the last five years, but prior to like five years ago, did you ever observe someone who you felt like, wow, you know, I really need this student to not the student is is missing something and this is going to be hard to continue to encourage them down this oh, path. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So um the groundling system is built on it's a, it's a cord, it's a, a laddered system, right? So you take the basic class and if you 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 uh, pass that, you go to intermediate and, and so forth and so on. There's like five levels. And at every level the teacher is responsible for making that decision. Is this student consistent enough and adept enough to handle the next level yet because they we charge a lot of money and if you know if you're not ready for that next level you're not going to have any fun and you're going to slow down the class and the teacher at that level is going to spend a lot more time bringing you up to speed and it affects the other students you know so we take it all pretty seriously but the thing is you're allowed to repeat classes uh i think three times so most people repeat most people repeat several levels several times because you just got to get the reps you just got to get the practice of it you're an improviser you know you you just got to get the the stage time Mm -hmm. um but if you if you repeat three times and the teacher the third teacher still thinks you're not adept enough or consistent enough to handle the next level then we'll ask you to step out of the program we'll ask you to step step off and that it feels like a heartbreaker and i've only had to do that a couple of times over many many years but it comes down to that being mature in the authority position here and not lying to a student who is spending their money, spending their time. And if you're not at a level where you can handle the next thing, then you're not doing yourself any service. Sometimes it's, you know, you would be better served to go take a different kind of acting training. Maybe this is just not connecting with you or go away and practice and come back in a year or whatever. You know, there's a lot of different variables, but uh, yeah, I've, I've had one or two students that I had to say, I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but I don't think this is a fit for you. And we don't want you to just keep wasting your money here. If it's not a fit for you, what, you know, what other options do we have? So I've had to go through that once or twice. And then one time I had to kick a student out of the program. So not out of a class, but out of the entire school program because he was a scary guy. And he came in with his girlfriend. He was a little weedy guy, so thin and a lot of a lot of tattoos and and not that that should but but neck tattoos and kind of a rough guy. But the bigger 
the bigger real point was that everything he did in a scene was misogynistic and abusive. And I, you just kept, kept giving him the notes like, this is not funny. You can't do this. People are visibly uncomfortable with this. And he just couldn't make that change. And he would nod and go, oh, yeah, right. Sorry, man. My bad. You're right. My bad. And then do the exact same shit in the next scene. And that guy was just at a, you know, a place in his journey where he couldn't take that note and couldn't make that change. So I had to, you know, I kicked him out of the whole program, but he was very cool. And I was so nervous about it. Kate. Oh my I didn't want to, you don't want to, you don't want to be the person who kicks somebody out. B, he was a scary guy. I didn't, I didn't want to be the guy you have to, to, to have to kick him out. But when I said it, he said, I get that all the time, bro. I feel you. I get it. Blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and it was, it was, very understanding and i felt like okay this this guy knows how he is perceived in great part because of the shit that comes out of his own mouth it it, it turned out to be totally fine but i did yeah i had to move him on <laughs> yeah that would be those like you're describing my worst nightmare especially because i have the people pleaser thing too and like i don't want to like especially when it's people's because it's not just like you're telling them that they need to rewrite an english paper you're potentially right. saying to them like this career may not be your gym of course that's not how you position it and that might not be true right. you might just not be great at improv and you can be a great actor in a different way but oh i just it yeah. was tough it was it was just more at the content. I mean, and, and the idea that I've given you the note five times, you know, you, you, you're, you can't just, yeah, you're not, you can't, you can't just punch stage combat, <laughs> punch every partner in every scene, at, you know, every single time you're on the stage, it cannot be just physical violence every time. And a lot of it accompanied with just misogynistic bullshit and just, eh, you know, so anyway, I was really afraid to, to have that conversation, but the guy turned out to be totally cool. It's like, yep. I get that all the time, man. <laughs> this I is gotcha. me, bro. It's like, okay. That's it. It's okay. like, great. See you around. Okay. This may not apply to you, but, and feel free to just be like, I don't have an answer for this, but how many bodily fluids have been on your person whilst you were on the clock? Ooh, not that many. Spit. Uh, yeah, no, that's it. Body. I, I don't, I, I don't want to, I don't want to jinx it, but nobody's ever vomited or, or any other fluids all over me. So I think just spits the only thing it's got me. You're very lucky. And now that you're virtual, it's <laughs> like, well, now, now there's not going to be, there's going to be a whole lot less. Ah. Do you tip? Do I tip? Yeah, I always tip 15 to 20. It's always 15 minimum. 15 is if, I, if I'm, if I'm mad at you, like if, <laughs> if I think you did bad service, I'll give you a 15. So 20%, but that's, that's kind of it. And that becomes, my frugality and my practicality and living in Los Angeles and all that kind of stuff. So I'm not a huge tipper, but yeah, I, I definitely do tip. Do you ever not tip? Is there something you said 15% if they're bad? Is there, is there a zero ever? I don't think I've ever not given a tip. I, I think I'm too afraid to not give a tip oh, or whatever. Uh, yeah. And I've also, I've been lucky. I've never, I've never had service. that was so bad that plus, you know, you and your demographic you know, will know this. Being a server is hard, man. It is not an easy gig. You know, just because I, I, didn't, I didn't get the, the salad dressing I wanted the first time I asked, there's no reason to cheat you out of an extra 10 bucks, you know? So, no, I, I don't think I've ever really stiffed anybody. Do you think that the tip infrastructure is flawed or do you think it makes sense in this country? Oh, God, I never thought about that. I don't know. Could, could, could we do it the European way or do it the other? I, I don't even know what the other ways are so much. I'm so used to the tipping structure. That seems natural to me. But I, I would be open to other. What, what are the other structures I, I, to not tip? I mean, I don't, I don't know. 
It's a it's it's a question think, that we've been emailed about and like if from people overseas who are like, please explain what's the tip. Like we don't why. You know, one one thing I know about is it's it's a way for the owners to save money. So they they pay the servers a minimum wage because you also get these bonus tips. But it's really a way that the the owners and the managers don't have to shell out that that money up front. You know, it's all capitalism. It's all shave every penny you can and put it in my pocket and not in your and pocket. Not in yours. And all that's kind of crappy too, you know. Yeah. But that's why if you if you can th- throw an extra couple of bucks at a server, do so, man. I mean, that's a hard job and it's generally a minimum wage job. Have you uh well, you probably I'm going to skip that one. Were you ever fired from a customer service job? Or have you ever been fired? Uh, I feel like you're just not no. that guy. Yeah. I'm I'm getting that. No, sense. no, no. I don't think I've been fired from any job. Let's see. Nope. And there I don't think so. It's impressive. Okay. Can you give an example of like a worst customer experience interaction or um, maybe describe uh, the archetype of like the worst customer? Or if you have a story, tell it. And if you don't, you can go down. Gras. So I grew oh. up in New Orleans and we worked on uh, the Burger King I was at was on the, the main drag, right? And during the two weeks prior to Mardi Gras day, there are parades almost every night, Monday through every night. So the the marching bands from all these different scattered schools around Louisiana and sometimes Texas and Alabama, you know, they would often be invited and there would be a, a school bus or two of high school, starving high school kids who had just marched for four hours, sometimes in the rain and shit in the Mardi Gras. And they would always inevitably, because of the way that the schedules were, they would show up at one minute to 11 when you're about to lock the door. You've cleaned everything. All you want to do is click the lock and walk out the door. You've cleaned everything. Everything's ready to go. And they would show up. And the managers would see... Here comes 60 Money. extra orders that's going to make my day or my night. And, you know, it's not 11 o'clock yet. We, we're going to welcome him in. And so and you're, by then you're on skeleton crew. So it'd be like two people trying to trying to take the orders and, and cook them and feed, you know, those were a nightmare. And then as much as I love teens, and of course I was one and I still behave like one, they're not the best customers at 11 o'clock at night when they're wet and tired and hungry and they want the strawberry shake. They're all oh, sorry, we're out of strawberry mix. It would be a bus, a literal school bus filled with these people, generally two school buses. And if you don't feed them, they're not going to, you know, they got to drive all the way back to blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it's, you want to feed them, but it, that would, <laughs> that was my nightmare customer. And it wasn't just a one, it was the, the, the gang of them. There's something to do with, uh, with horror movies, like how to make a thing scary. And it's either make the thing a lot bigger or have a, lot, a much larger multitude of them. So you can either have King Kong, which is a giant gorilla, or you have Planet of the Apes, which is a bunch of gorillas. This was a bunch of gorillas in high school band costumes at you know eleven o'clock at night. Oh my god! When you would go with the skeleton crew and having cleaned everything, I would have lost oh, my yes. No, because you know everything. Everything's swept. Everything. Every table is cleaned already. Everything's mopped. Everything's just lock it and go. The money is counted. Everything's done. You know all all the condiments are refilled and married for the next. All done. And then here comes and again sixty teens. They're not the cleanest people. They don't give a shit about it. You know, they're going to they're gonna mess you up until midnight. Then you got to clean it all up again. Horrible. No, Horrible. thank you. No, thank you. That's the, that, that is the worst. I would have lost my mind. One. Yes. Well, on that note, we're going to move on to the good stuff. We hope you all saved room hey. for dessert. <laughs> okay. Hey, dessert. Dessert time. Now this is positive.
Okay, what is the nicest thing a customer or a student or a director or so anyone you've interacted with on a customer service level? What's the nicest thing they've done for you whilst you were working? Compliments, probably. I mean, I don't, I don't remember any getting anything physical. Like, I, I, I don't have any tip stories where it's like somebody give me a thousand dollars. You know, I, nothing like that. No one ever gifted me a physical thing that I can remember. Really, there's a lot of swag in 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 Hollywood stuff. So occasionally you get like yeah, Brian's a guest star. Here's your your swag gift, and I love and appreciate those. But they gave that to everybody who was on the the set. So. Probably, you know, genuine compliments. If if you can, if I can discern them, and if I can get them in in Hollywood, they they're worth quite a bit more. And uh, I've been lucky enough to get a couple of really genuine, uh, nice compliments. Are you comfortable sharing those? Oh yeah. Well, there was a, I did a show called Significant Others where uh, it was an improvised dialogue show I did with uh, my friend Andrea Savage. We played a couple, and uh, it lasted for two years on Bravo. It, 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 less than probably twelve months or something on Bravo. And uh, about a year after that, I was walking around Santa Monica, and this guy stopped me on the corner and and said, "You were on Significant Others." I said, "Yes, I was." He was a real psychiatrist that watched the show and the show, the the, deceit, the the conceit of the show, not the deceit, the, <laughs> the conceit of the show were couples in therapy doing the, the interview stuff and then they would cut to scenes from their lives. And this guy was a psychiatrist and he said that the way I played a person in therapy who did not want to be there with his, with his mate was so believable yet so funny. And it just, and I said, thank you, strange man, and never saw the guy again. So I felt like that was a really genuine one because this guy could get nothing from me, you know? And that really made me feel good. More, and I don't know if it's more so, but equally so if I get compliments as a teacher because I really like to to share this improv stuff. It's really fun. And if somebody somebody connects to it and it, if, if I help them a little bit with their career or their communications career stuff, I, I, I find that very fulfilling as well. Oh, that's lovely. I would have cried actual tears if someone came up to me who like worked in the profession and was like, hey, that's believable. People don't understand like we are yeah. acting. We're acting like we think we're so yes. serious and whatever. But my God, if someone tells you you're believable, there's almost no better compliment. That's that's it. That's the that's the juice right there. That keep, that'll, that that would have kept is. me going for a couple more years. It did. It did. This is a long time ago. So yeah. it was a really, really meaningful one to me. God, Brian, we need so little, don't we? Just like all the attention. Know, but also just just... A pat on the head. <laughs> We're like puppies. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, you said you don't have a best tip story. So do you have a best customer now specific to um when you were working at the the poach dominoes or bk lounge <laughs> or you know anything um or even for the month at universal was there someone you know was there like a best customer interaction not not a universal because the customers were were different every two hours you know you get a tram full of 400 people and then when they're done they are into the park and then they go back to nebraska so i never you don't you don't really get to multiply interact with people at universal or i did not certainly uh, Burger King and, and Domino's both had repeat customers, and I probably remembered several of them, a lot of them. In other jobs, sort of repeat. What was it? The, the, not a repeat customer, but just the, the best customer? Just like you customer? can just, yeah, like the, the best customer you personally have interacted with it or like a standout moment that you're like, oh, yeah, I remember, you know, this, I don't know, this customer knew I it was my birthday and I was working and brought me a balloon or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> that's, well, that's very sweet. I don't have that story, Kate. Oh. My life is meaningless because yep. I've never had a customer bring me a balloon. And Every anything. Well, it's because no, you were handing out the balloons as the elf. Like you couldn't be uh, wait, brought the balloon. Wait, okay, so sorry, sorry, sorry. No, I go, just go, thought go. of one while you were saying. I'm, yeah. 
So teaching improv, that counts as customer service, right? There was a a six-week class, 12 classes, happened to end on my birthday, whenever this was, years ago. And of course, I had mentioned that to the class, hoping that we could go out and get a drink or somebody would do something. I was pimping myself out to get... But that class really, they got along really well with themselves and with me. And it was just a fun class and people had a blast. And so people brought in a cake and they brought in food and they brought in, they they gave me a bottle of tequila with these fancy shot glasses and stuff. So we just popped them open and started drinking it after class. And then we made uh, a couple of really dumb warm-up games into drinking games and, and, and did it with shots. So not zip, zap, zap, but something along those lines, you know. And that was one of the most fun nights of my life. And that was from the students doing that. So that, in a way, is definitely the customers doing it for you, for me, right? No so question. that was meaningful. That was really nice. What a really fun, what a cool thing to be able to say this is one of the most fun nights of your life. Like those sort of randomly put together experiences where it's like an a collection of people that would normally never coalesce like or coexist together in that way good point yeah that's neat okay well what's the best lesson that you have personally learned from working in customer service oh my god you asked deep questions kate i I wasn't prepared for any of this stuff we're we're going Uh, there best lesson i've learned it's that you know put the focus on the other so i mentioned that earlier it's really important for improv because you don't know what your partner's going to say you don't know what their face their their emotional choice is going to be. You don't know what, the, what their body language is going to be. You don't know what their space work or object work is going to be. You don't know. They have no idea. The only way to improvise successfully is to put your focus on the other person. Also helps you get out of your own head. But I learned that through every job that I've had is it's not just about me and my day. To whatever degree it is, it's about me and my day in conjunction with you, the person in front of me right now. So that's very customer service oriented. And I may have learned that at Burger King. I mean, I must have had some kind of training of like, hi, welcome to, may I take your mother? I mean, I must have had some kind of, you know, uh, interaction training. I don't remember it really. But uh, that's what I think I would be the most beneficial thing to learn from any kind of customer interaction is think of the other person. You know, everybody's got their, everybody's got their story. Everybody's got their stuff going on and, and, and try to make every interaction a win-win but even if it's going bad, think about the other person. They're not there to ruin your life. They're just having a bad day, maybe. What's one piece of advice you would give to customers who interact with customer service workers? Imagine it's you. Think uh, the server as what if it was you and how would you like to be treated? It's a golden rule, man. It's just a golden rule. Treat everybody like you want to be treated. And we don't all have the ability to leave $100 tips and stuff. And I'm saying that like this. I'm sure you've had stories where people got $10,000 or something. But even if you don't have the ability to tip well, you can still be a nice person and a, a welcoming person and a grateful person. And I would, I would love to be able to share that with every customer and remind myself of it. You know, we all need to be reminded of that. Just, you know, be a good person, not just a good customer. <laughs> well, yeah. that's, a, that's a positive note to end on. Well, I know you mentioned it up top, but I'd like to mention again, how can people get in touch with you? And you mentioned your website, but are you on socials? And like, if they want to yeah, get I, a private with you, I, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, everybody hit me up on Facebook. I'm old, so I'm still more Facebooky. I do have a Twitter and Instagram presence of some sort, but I, I don't engage as much there. But certainly if you if you request a message to me, it'll get to me, right? But Facebook is easy. It's just my name and you'll have it in the in the show description. And then the website is Palermo Improv Training and you can email me through that too. And uh, basically it splits down to three categories. I teach comedic theatrical improv, improv as it's applied to corporate needs, 
such as leadership and and uh, communication skills and presentation skills, and as it's applied to science communication. And then uh, within any of those three buckets, I do privates as well. So I, I, do, I teach a lot of improv comedy to people all over the place who just, I want an extra workout on character stuff. I do a lot of character work because Groundlings is known for character style. Cool. Blah, blah, blah. So you can reach me anywhere through those three. Cool. And it's uh, $5,000 an hour, as he has previously mentioned. So That's it my is... take home, Kate. Oh, I, I'm so I sorry. I charge $8,000. Uh, see, I'm, but, a, I'm know, not listening. a lot of expenses. Yeah, I haven't really been listening this whole time because I'm just not into <laughs> it. Okay. Well, folks, we're going to drop your checks now. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to help us out here at Service from Home, we'd love to have you subscribe, rate, and or review the show wherever you listen. It will help us reach more people that need to be schooled on the art of being kind and will be catharsis for those of us still working in the industry. If you want to get in touch with us directly here at Service from Hell, send us your receipts at Service from Hell podcast at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you remember if you can't afford to tip you can't afford to go out so don't be garbage and be good to people it's easier that way thanks brian this was lovely you're so lovely okay thank you for inviting me it was so fun to talk to you and to you meet too. you you too i love that i we got to meet on the podcast and yeah that's that's gonna do it Even for more. us folks good night not open and this is really difficult oh, so honey, i do uh, not like to talk to strange people yeah you this get is nothing from me kate <laughs>